We are in week two of the series on corporate worship, and considering the elements, we looked last week at the, uh, the greeting, the announcements, the call to worship, and before we move into the other elements of worship, like the confession of sin and other portions, we are hanging back a little bit today, looking at the corporate worship still, but related to a second service, an evening worship service. So that's what we're going to be uh, addressing this morning. Uh, let me read Psalm 92 after I pray for us, and that will um, set the scriptural tone, if you will. Let's pray. A gracious God, we come before you with thankful hearts, thankful that we have the opportunity to, to study your word, to study a topic that is uh, very uh, important, a topic of worship, all important, Lord. That is why you have created us, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. And we do pray that as we uh, discuss the, the matter of worship related to a, an additional, an evening service, uh, help us, Lord, to see Truly, the joys and the blessings that a second service provides, that you provide through a second service. So Psalm 92, I'm not going to preach on this this morning in ABF. I'm not going to speak at length about this text because I preached on it at an evening service about a year ago, and it's listed in the resources. So if you've not heard that sermon or you want to hear it again, it's there I believe that the sermon was called Exalted in the Evening, but that sermon was based on this text, because it, this text is the only psalm, interestingly, it's the only psalm that says specifically that it is for the Sabbath. And in this Sabbath song, we see a reference to morning and evening. So here is Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen. A lot can be, ought to be said about a second service, about the joys, the blessings of an evening service. I cannot say all that, what ought to be said in a single message here but you will get the 
historical and biblical and the practical rationale for having an additional second service. And the tone here, the, the purpose here is to promote this second service. By promoting the second service, I am not then saying that there are not at times legitimate reasons for being unable to, to attend. We all acknowledge that. There are legitimate reasons why some person, some family might not be able to attend. But I'm not here to give you all those exceptions, okay? I'm not here to give you um, a bland presentation. I'm here to promote something that the session believes is a good thing. As you guys know, if you've been around the last few weeks, the, we, I announced on behalf of the session that we are having more often evening service. So no, no longer will it just be those months that have five Sundays on the fifth Sunday. It'll be starting next month, first and third, and when applicable, the fifth Sundays of the month. So we're going to a, a more regular, more frequent offering. And I also want you to see that the, the tone of all this is not well, you better come or else, okay? That's not how we motivate people to gospel obedience. It's rather, you get to come. So come, if you can, and try to come. That's, that's pretty much the tone, okay? And we'll, I'll, I'll speak more about that later on towards the end of the lesson. Let's consider the historical rationale, uh, the joy of following the historical church. So, again, the historical testimony is replete with uh, second service pattern. You see in your notes, second century. So there's a man named Pliny the Younger, and he was not a Christian, but he was, he was basically set on a mission to spy out the Christians, to inquire into their practice. What are, they, what are these Christians doing? And is what they're doing meritorious of, you know, persecution and, and death? Are they defying the emperor? So go ahead, Pliny. He wasn't called Pliny the Younger by the emperor, but because there was the older and the younger. Go ahead, Pliny, and figure out what these early Christians are doing. And we can put them on some charges. Let's do that. Well, he found... Uh, that Christians would gather ante lucum, which is Latin. Some of us know some Latin. Ante lucum, which is Latin for before light. Okay, so this is what he found to, this is what he reported to Emperor Trajan. Christians would gather before light on a fixed day. What day do you think that was? Sunday, good. Sing hymns to Christ as if to God. Okay. You see, even early on, second century, the Christians knew Christ was God. They would sing hymns to Christ as if to God. They would take oaths, perhaps some oaths of Christian conduct, maybe even some early version of membership, and committing uh, one to another, only to return the same fixed day for an evening service, which usually involved a meal, sometimes called an agape. And agape is just the word for love, but sometimes it can mean a love feast. So what meal do you think these early Christians would come back to eat in the evening? The Lord's Supper, yes. 
So, Pliny says, they're getting up real early, and they're worshiping this Christ as if he's God. Perish the thought. And they're, they're, some, some misunderstood what, they were, what the Christians were doing. They thought that they were eating real, real flesh. Like, they're eating Christ's body? What is this? These are, these are cannibals. There was, the, the accusation was leveled against them that they were cannibals because they were eating what well, Christ said, this is my body given for you. So they're coming together in the morning really early. In fact, some of them probably still had to work because being uh, compelled by uh, dictates of Rome, of Roman Empire, they didn't have that day off. So they came morning, worshipped. Some of them probably had to go back to work under, uh, again, Roman compulsion, and then returned in the evening for another service. This is not in your notes, but uh, 5th century onward, at least 5th century there, uh, we know this from what are called lectionaries. Lectionaries are uh, lists of readings of Scripture that would be used in a church service. Some services are, some denominations have uh, a, a, a set reading. So this, on this Lord's Day, you read this text in the New Testament, this text in the Old Testament, and then uh, the next Sunday you read another text. You just go through the whole Bible. Well, lectionaries had that, and th- these were... This is what lectionaries were, and they began at least in the 5th century. could have been a little earlier, and there were lectionaries for morning and evening service. Readings to be done in the morning, and then readings to be done when you returned in the evening. Fast forward to the 16th century, and Calvin in Geneva, there were three city churches. My French is uh, is bad, so three city churches, St. Pierre, St. Gervais, and then... Madeleine? Okay. At any rate, these three city churches were legally compelled to provide 33 services every single week. 33. Now, not all in one location nor on one day. It was 11 each week per church. That's the minimum. Okay, that's what you had to have. And, of course, not all of them were on Sunday. I'm not sure how you can get 11 in a single day. Be short services, but uh, the ministers were expected to preach two or three times each Sunday. There would be a morning service, and then because of just the light, there would be two afternoon services. And the two afternoon services were usually uh, about a half hour or so shorter than the morning service. And they had different uh, areas of emphasis. One would be like catechism. Another would be maybe an Old Testament in the morning and New Testament in the evening or vice versa. So the ministers were required to come together uh, to have the, the church um, assemble and then to preach to them. In the 17th century, we know that famous Synod of Dort, 1618, 1619. Now, if we know what took place in the Synod of Dort, if there's only one thing we knew that took place, it was that this was a response to the Remonstrance. Remember, the Remonstrance was that group of people that objected to what we would later know to be Calvinism, right? And they had five points of opposition, and those are responded to, which later had the acronym TULIP. The Synodor did not create TULIP because it was Dutch and not English. Um, 
That's what happened in Synod of Dort. That's the major thing as far, I guess, we were concerned. But that wasn't the only thing that was addressed at that synod. One question that came before the synod was this. What do we do about the poorly attended evening worship service? So in the 17th century, despite the historical um, practice, just like any generation that has two services, the evening service has lower attendance. And it got so low that the Synod addressed this question. So what do we do with this? Very few people are coming. Do we just scrap it and let the minister just have that part of the day you know, off or can relax and do something else? Maybe use his time uh, with visitation. Or do we, do we have it? Keep it? And the answer was that the ministers are to preach understandable sermons. Okay, knowing the, the, the kind of people that they're preaching to, but they're still to preach, even if the only ones in attendance are the pastor and his family. So, hey, it's just you, your wife, and your kids. You still go, and you still preach to them. Your family still needs the gospel. Okay. In the 19th and 20th centuries, in British and American Reformed congregations, two or even three services were the norm. See, we're just talking about a second service here, but in some, in some centuries, some places, three were the norm. In the handbook of one congregation, I can't recall where it, where it was, but it's called Cars Lane. This is the spirit of one congregation. This is certainly not the spirit of everyone in that congregation, I'm sure, or any or any everyone uh, in British and American Reformed congregations. But this does emphasize the person's commitment, the congregation's commitment to a second service. It says no professing Christian should allow himself to be satisfied with one service on the Sabbath, unless prevented by age, infirmity, or distance from attending twice. And I think we can all, even though that might be controversial, I think we can all agree with that. If, if what we're doing in worship is praising God, who of us is ever satisfied with his praise to the Lord? Okay. Of course, all this is not to say that, that everyone believed the same thing about a second service. We know that the Synod of Dort uh, had that struggle. Uh, the, the congregations in the 19th and 20th centuries certainly had that uh, challenge as well. And in America, in the 21st century, it, we have that. So uh, probably, I, mean, I think you could, I think two services were the norm about 60 years ago, 50 years ago, but not really. And what we're talking about here is across nominations. We're not talking just about uh, the, the Reformed. Um, and even in Calvin's day, not everyone wanted to go to that second service or that third service. And some were disciplined if, if they did not offer a legitimate reason for their absence. But all this is to say that morning and evening worship has been part of the historical church's practice despite denominational affiliation. It doesn't matter if, you, you know, if it's Presbyterian or, or Baptist. Uh, various denominations have morning and evening I know I grew up in an Assemblies of God congregation, and we had morning and evening. 
and then Wednesday gathering and other things as well. Well, if that's all we have, then there might be a reason to it. Okay, churches for since the early second century down to, you know, except for like last, last 50 or 60 years, they've, they've all pretty much been doing it. So that's, that's good practice. Let's just keep it up. But we're not about tradition for the sake of tradition. So there has to be some kind of biblical rationale that the, the historical tradition is based on. We don't want to follow some tradition blindly. And we see then the joy of following the biblical pattern. The churches of history did not make up this pattern. They simply followed it. That's why you have so many churches, so many congregations, so many denominations following a morning and evening pattern, because it is scriptural. So in Exodus 29, 38 through 43, we read about morning and evening sacrifices. Now, this context has them daily. But notice the pattern. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. So here, there's a pattern as far as the tabernacle ministry is concerned. The burnt offering is, is, is always given every single day. But here we have uh, two lambs offered daily. One in morning and one at twilight. And what's happening is that the people are being, uh, the Lord is meeting with the people. He is meeting with them to speak to them. This is what we do when we worship. We, we offer a sacrifice of praise. We don't need to offer lambs. We don't need to offer any you know, pigeons or bulls or goats or anything like that. We're told in the New Testament that we offer a sacrifice of praise. And the incense uh, spoken of in the Old Testament uh, was referenced in the future to our own prayers. So we do not offer any animals anymore because Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament types and shadows. But the Lord still meets with us. That's why he's called us. That's what the call to worship is. He's, I, I have promised to meet with you because I'm faithful to my covenant, come and worship and offer sacrifice of praise. Come to hear my word. Come to see my glory. That's what we get in New Testament worship. And we see that all the way back in Exodus 29. We're not going to read Numbers 10, 1 through 10, but uh, here's another text that speaks of this pattern there is a, a two-a-day trumpeting for assembling. So not every time that these two trumpets were sounded did it mean that they were to assemble for the purpose of worship. Sometimes both, when, when both trumpets were sounded, they came together to prepare to leave. 
basically it was a sign, hey guys, everyone get, get over here in the same spot, and then hear your orders, we're, we're going to leave, we're going to go to another place. Remember, this is in the time of the tabernacle, where it's a mobile presence of God. So they don't have their holy land yet. They haven't gotten into Canaan yet. So they are still moving, and they need to have some sign of when to come to assemble and then to leave. But at the same time, two trumpets were sounded for the purpose of worship when they were accompanied by the burnt and peace offerings. And as we just saw in Exodus 29, these were offered in morning and at twilight for the purpose of worship. So not every double trumpet was for the assembly of worship, but when the people were called and, and whose calling came with the double trumpet, one purpose was to worship the Lord in the morning, and then they were called again to worship him in the evening. I already read Psalm 92 and said, I'm not going to uh, speak at length about that because I did preach that text. Uh, I would just say, listen to that if you've, if you've not, or have a, have a second listen if you desire. Psalm 113, verse 3, again, this, we see this pattern of whole day worship. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So the, psalm, the psalmist has this whole day worship perspective. He is not meaning by this that he is always at the temple that he, he never leaves the temple on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath. But it is to get at this idea that the Lord's Day is set apart. And so we are to think very intentionally about what we do, what we say on this day. And the Lord is be praised not just part of the day. It's not the Lord's 90 minutes, okay? It's the Lord's day. And George Swinnick, the great Puritan, exhorts the reader to all-day worship. He says, Reader, as thy duty is to rest the whole day from wickedness and worldly work, so also to employ the whole day in God's worship, be either praying or reading or hearing or singing or meditating or discoursing with others about the works or word of God. So Swinnick is saying, make sure you use the Lord's day well. This would be in corporate worship, this would be in private worship, this would be in family worship. Make sure that you are using the whole day for the worship of God. Psalm 141, 2, David is connecting the praises, uh, his praises to the altar that was established in the days of Moses. He says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, in his context, obviously, he was at the evening sacrifice and literally lifting his hands. But this is, again, pointing us to what our prayers do as, as incense. They, they rise to the heavens. Morning and evening, our worship comes to God. The church today meets no less with God than the Old Testament saints did. In fact, as we saw last week from Hebrews 12, what we come to is categorically substantially different from what the Old Testament saints came to, in that we come to a 
better mountain. They were worshiping the true God to the extent that they were worshiping by faith. But we come where the, the types and shadows are no more, and the fulfillment of the better covenant is before us. And so we have to, we have to ask the question, if the Old Testament saints had morning and evening worship, are we content with a single service? If what we come to is a greater, more mature covenant, a better covenant, we need to grow. Just because we're in the 21st century does not mean we are more mature Christians than those who came before us. I mean, you just read the Puritans and they... Don't intentionally, well, sometimes, they put you to shame. Like, wow, I wish I could be the kind of Christian that Flavel is or the Swinnick is. I wish I had the affections for Christ like Bunyan does or if, that I knew my sin like, like this man does. And the reason that they were so mature is that they were devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to the worship of God. And one way that they saw that devotion was morning and evening worship and whole day Sabbath um, participation in the worship of God. Again, privately, as family, corporately. In the New Testament, you don't see a lot. You don't see this morning, evening throughout. That shouldn't be a surprise, though. There's a lot that is simply assumed in the New Testament, assumed from the Old Testament. The New Testament does not need to repeat everything the Old Testament says in order for that to continue in the New Testament. So in, in John 20, verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So this is the very first Lord's Day. Okay, so the, remember the, the Sabbath goes to the Christian Sabbath, changes the day from Saturday to Sunday with the resurrection of Christ. So you said this is the first Lord's Day. Uh, this, is, this is not, a, don't hear me say that this is a corporate gathering of, of, for the purpose of worship. Obviously, that's not what's going on here. But it is to, to show something of this pattern already. So on the first Lord's Day... On Resurrection Sunday, the very first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb of Jesus while it was still dark, while it was toward the dawn, while it was at early dawn. It just depends on which gospel account you read. It's super early and dark is turning into light. And then verses 19 to 23 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So then there is a second gathering here in the evening. Jesus pacifies the distressed souls of his disciples. He breathes on them. He says, peace be with you, and he breathes on them. He breathes the Holy Spirit. 
on them. He gives them, and this text is rather controversial as far as the, the whole import of it, but he gives them, I think, a taste of what is about to happen at Pentecost with the, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. He gives his disciples the authority to forgive sins and to withhold forgiveness of sins. This is, in part, what we see on Lord's Day. We come in the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot worship Christ truly unless we worship Christ by the Spirit. We need to have that Spirit breathed upon us, or now in the fullness, indwelling us. We need that. And what do we see in worship? But the confession of sins, and then the assurance of pardon. Yes, your sins are forgiven if you trust in Christ. What do we see but Jesus meeting with his people? The mediator, the one who is calling you to come and worship, meets you every Lord's Day by his Spirit and takes you to the Father and is interceding for you. So we see even just in this text some of the same elements that we see on Lord's Day, uh, on corporate worship. In Acts 20, you guys are familiar with this text, Acts 27 and 8, with uh, Eutychus, it's just a couple of verses, I'll let me read it. That's the guy who self-defenestrates unwittingly, accidentally throws himself out of a, a window because he's asleep. So it says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, so the we there is including Luke. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted, which means they were very much comforted. That's Luke's way of saying they were quite comforted. So they uh, break bread. They're, they're eating the Lord's Supper. That's an acts to break bread, often, if not always, meant to eat the Lord's Supper, especially if it takes place on the first day of the week. Paul speaks, he uh, preaches, and preaches, and preaches quite at length. I don't want us to think that he is, he's only just preaching for hours and hours and hours. He does have this conversation with his, he does have conversation with the, guy, with the guys there, um, but he certainly does uh, preach, and so much so that one man was trying so hard, I'm sure, to stay awake, because it was good preaching. It had to have been good preaching. It was Paul. You, know, you don't want to miss that. Paul comes to town. You've heard tell of this man. He's quite the preacher. Um, Paul, we see, uses every minute of the Lord's Day for the gathering and for worship, from, from the first day of the week, from evening until midnight to early dawn. He wants to maximize the Lord's Day for the worship of God with his brothers and sisters. He also knew that he was going to leave. He 
I got, I got to get, I got to say the last things I need to say. Okay. So we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament this pattern of morning and evening. Now, uh, an objection might arise. There is no command to worship the Lord twice on Sunday. It is true. And that, that truth has led Bob Godfrey. If I were to have a favorite of the Ligonier Fellows, and I do, it would be, and it is, Bob Godfrey. Okay. Dutch Reformed Presbyterian. He's steadfast in promoting Presbyterianism with some of the uh, remaining uh, Baptists in Ligonier. Anyways, he, all, he always takes an opportunity whenever there is about worship and Lord's Day, Sabbath, and all this. He, he always says, uh, we need to have more worship services. So he'll say, you're right. The Bible doesn't say uh, to worship the Lord twice on Sunday. So let's do three times or four. And he says he's only somewhat facetious because he does think that there needs to be that regular uh, and often intake of the Word of God and the corporate gathering. Do you know that there is no explicit command for women to take the Lord's Supper? Nowhere in the New Testament where you see women, you need to take the Lord's Supper. Does that mean that Paul is the sexist that everyone claims he is? He doesn't want women to take the Lord's Supper. He didn't give a command for them to take the Lord's Supper. Certainly not. Can we, by good necessary consequences, believe that women ought to take the Lord's Supper? Yes. Why? Because they are children of the Lord. Do you know also that the, the, the text of the New Testament does not give one command to baptize the babies of believers? There's not one command to baptize the babies of believers. Do we Presbyterians throw up our hands and say, fine, I guess we don't baptize babies of believers? No, by good and necessary consequences, we say, from the Old Testament continuity to the New. There's good reason. In fact, uh, we would be uh, derelict in our duty if we didn't baptize the babies of believers. Now, I'm not saying that about evening worship, but I am saying that uh, just because there's no explicit command does not mean that we can say, all right, let's not do it. In fact, there is no command to worship the Lord only once on Sunday. So, uh, maybe we follow then the biblical pattern instead of preference, but follow the biblical pattern of Old Testament, New Testament, of morning and evening. Clearly, the Lord has given us much in his word to, uh, to say all of the Lord's day is to be spent on worship. And here's a pattern, morning and evening. And in... The, uh, in our Book of Church Order, in our standards, there, there's mention of the elements of worship are regulated by God, right? We looked last week at the RPW. That we only worship God as commanded. But there are circumstances of worship that are left to the, the elders of the church. So a circumstance would be like what time we have service. There's no biblical mandate to have worship service at 1045 a.m., doesn't say how long the service has to be. Okay. So those circumstances are to be uh, 
addressed. They ought to be addressed, because we have to have a time when, when we come together. They ought to be addressed, but, but they're addressed by um, the, the wisdom that the elders have as they search the Scriptures. And so we hear, here we see, again, the testimony of Scripture in morning and evening. Say, okay, circumstance, morning. It's not a sin to only have one service. Certainly not a sin to have two. Let's, let's have a second service. And some, as we saw in, in history, have said, let's do three. I don't know if there was one that said, let's do four. There might, there might be. But you have to have room, as the Westminster divines are um, careful to state, there were four morning and evening service, but they also have to have this proper balance. This is all day worship, yes, and there should be, again, private, family, and corporate. There need to be, there needs to be room for acts of piety and necessity, mercy. So there needs to be some time, perhaps, to visit that person in the hospital or to bring that shut in a meal, uh, to have time with just your family. Perhaps even time to take a physical rest, a nap. Some Puritans were, were against a physical nap, but others, most of them said, no, you need to take a nap. Just don't oversleep. Just don't sleep too much. So there needs to be room for, for all of those. And no single Lord's Day is going to, uh, we're going to be able to do everything that we want to do. That's okay. We have another Lord's Day the next Sunday and the next and the next. So we, we come to worship. And, uh, and then, um, you know, fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And I preached on this a long time ago, it seems anyways, since we're in Mark 14 and this is Mark 2. Uh, in the early chapters of Mark, Jesus has some showdowns regarding the Sabbath. And you'll remember that in uh, Mark 2, Jesus says that the Sabbath is for man not man for the Sabbath. If we could just reason this way, biblically here, the Sabbath is for worship. The Sabbath is for man. This doesn't mean that man gets to decide what he wants. It means it is a gift for man. Okay? The Sabbath is a blessing from the Lord. It says, here, you don't have to work. Now you can worship, you can rest, you can enjoy what I have done for you. The Sabbath is for worship. The Sabbath is for man. Therefore, the Sabbath is for man to worship. Again, this is the primary duty and privilege is to worship God. Not the exclusive, but it is the primary. So we should subordinate our primary duty to biblical pattern and come in the morning and in the evening. I've already spoken about this, but I think it does well to um, point our attention to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, just the, paragraph, just the uh, eighth paragraph. So 21 is, is on uh, religious worship and the Sabbath day. I commend the whole chapter to you, but looking at section 8 says, this Sabbath, which is the Christian Sabbath mentioned in the previous paragraph, this Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a, ho- a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. That is the Westminster uh, view, which we as 
church that follows the standards. That's the, the Westminster view of the Sabbath. We try to keep the whole day, and we, uh, ov- we try to uh, put away our worldly employments, our worldly recreations. We put those away, say, yes, those are, those are legitimate pursuits, five, six days of the week. But the Sunday, the Lord's Day, is for the worship of God. So we put away those. I mean, I, I, want, I want that spatula from uh, that Father's Day spatula that is given out to the first 750 for those who go to the Woodpeckers game today. I want it just like everyone, just like everyone else does, okay? I'm sure you guys all know what I'm talking about. But what is to be preferred? Is, is going to a three-hour game the right use of the Lord's Day when you only have so many hours in, the, in a given Lord's Day? Certainly, as fun as it would be, and as relaxing as it would be, and as enjoyable as it would be to have that spatula for the grill for Father's Day, that's not what uh, this day is about. So we put aside the recreations, we put aside the worldly employments, and we devote our time to the worship of God. We don't do it perfectly ever, but that doesn't mean that we are not to try to heed the Lord's call. Saying no to one's pleasure is saying yes to one's prophet, priest, and king, which really ought to be our, pre- our pleasure. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is more keenly felt, but other times it's a bit of a struggle. I know this is, I know this is the right thing, Lord. Sometimes I don't feel it, but this is what you call me to do. Now, uh, I had surveyed... Um, as many churches in our presbytery as would respond about uh, their own worship on the Lord's Day. Do they have a, a morning and evening? And if they, if they do, what do they, what do they think about it? Do they like it? You know, if they don't have it, do they want it? If they don't have it, why, do they, why don't they want it? And so a lot of, a lot of reasons for uh, having and for not having. But one reason that uh, one elder gave for having a second service is, he says, having a second service helps Christians to drive away the creeping influence of the world. Entertainment, leisure, sports, getting ahead on work, and on and on. He says, I, I know the tendency to get back to work. I know the tendency to do my own pleasure, to do something that I like to do, which might not be what I ought to do. It takes work to study the Word of God. It takes work to have a, a godly conversation about the Word of God. It takes work to be in prayer. This is a good work. But uh, our flesh sometimes says, no, I don't want to do that. I just want to veg out. Isn't this a day for me just to sit back and relax and, and watch some TV or whatever? No, it's, it's for private, family, public worship. In Isaiah 58... Um, we, we see classic text on Sabbath from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 58, 13 and 14, it says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, 
from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight. So you can, you can see that the, the people here in Israel are, are moving away from the worship of God and they are preferring their own pleasure to the corporate gathering and to fourth commandment obedience. They're saying, I want, I want to do my own thing. But he says, if you turn your back, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you call the Sabbath a delight, it will be a delight to you. How could the Sabbath not be a delight for those who are understanding what the Sabbath is about? It's about God. It's about worshiping Him. It's about loving Him. It's about being devoted to Him. And theologically speaking here, we have the means of grace every single Lord's Day when we come together and worship. We have the means of grace. These are the ways that God gives grace to his people. These are the primary ways, word, sacraments, and prayer. If you want to have grace from God, you avail yourself of the word, of the sacraments, through prayer. And in the larger catechism, question 155, question answer 155, we'll spend uh, more time on this when we get to preaching the word uh, read and preached. He says, how is the word made effectual to salvation? So how does the Spirit apply the word to salvation? How is it made effectual? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. It says the word of God being read is a blessing. And you ought to be reading the word of God. But the divines here are saying, but especially the preaching of the word. And that's what happens every Lord's Day. Do you need to be driven out of yourselves? To, to think less about yourselves and to be drawn to Christ? I know I do. Do you need to be conformed more to his image? To be subdued to his will? To be strengthened when you are tempted? To be strengthened when uh, you see the corruptions of flesh? Do you need to be built up in grace? Of course you do. Do your hearts need to be established in holiness? Do your hearts need to be comforted through faith unto salvation? Yes, 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 yes. Then you read, but you also submit yourself to the preaching of the word of God. This is a means of grace. And we add delight upon delight with doubled worship. In a second service, then, there is double the public prayers. There is double the songs. There is double the readings of Scripture. 
Double the confessions of sin. Double the affirmations of faith. Double the sermons. Double the benedictions. Double the opportunities for fellowship. Now, I know too much of a good thing is a bad thing as applies to, say, ice cream. Good thing in itself. Eat too much of it, bad. Bad for your tummy. But you cannot say the same thing about corporate worship. Too much corporate worship is a bad thing. No, the Puritans say more corporate worship is a good thing. You need the public prayers. You need the songs, the readings, the confessions, the sermons, the benedictions, the fellowship. You need all of those more and more and more. The Puritans call the Sabbath day the market day of the soul. The market day of the soul. You get to go corporate worship. You get to go in the house of the Lord and have your soul feast. In fact, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, stock up on savory and nutritious food for your spiritual life. Stock up. Market day of the soul. Come. Receive the word of God. Sing back the word of God. See the word of God. Taste the word of God. The cherubim and the seraphim and all of those, uh, all the angels and, and all of those who are in heaven now without their bodies, they are not tiring of worship. They love to be around the throne of God, bowing down, worshiping him. That's what they were made for. And that's what we, we are joining with them every Lord's day. That's what we get to do. So one's not enough. Yeah, and two is not enough. I'm not advocating that we do more than two, but I'm saying our hearts, this side of heaven, will never be satisfied. So why not then give a second opportunity for that, for double the delight? Some side benefits would be to provide a service for those who have to work in the morning. We know that some people have to work in the morning, and, uh, and they can't get out of it, and they, they knew that getting into the, the job, and that's, that's totally fine. We understand that. Uh, if they can't go to the morning, if we have an evening, then they might, be able to, they might be off work at that time, so they can come and worship then. It is all, another benefit is to provide a service for those whose churches do not have an evening service. Maybe there are some in other denominations. We're not trying to steal sheep or anything like that, but there might be some in other congregations that, uh, that they want an evening service. And you know what? Cross Creek has one. We're not going to become members there, but we want to hear the word of God. And say, yes, come. Invite, invite your, your friends in other churches that are committed to those churches but want to spend that evening on the Lord's Day uh, in worship. Another is to provide opportunities, the occasional opportunities for licentiates and ruling elders to exhort. Here are more opportunities for other men who are taken under care, who are trying to uh, work their gifts, and elders who, who desire to preach, ruling elders, another opportunity. Here's another one, another side benefit. Uh, I'll preach better in the future. Lord willing. So Kevin DeYoung, uh, you guys know him from um, Christ Covenant in Charlotte. He said, this is when, when he first uh, came. I can't recall if it was, it wasn't in Charlotte, but it was in where he was in Michigan. He said to the session, I want an evening service. You guys don't have one. I want one because I need to preach better. And I figured if I preach twice every Lord's Day, then 
you're going to get better sermons sooner. And I say, well, I, I admire Kevin DeYoung's preaching, and I think it's awesome. How does he preach like that? How does he introduce a text like that? Oh, this is good. Uh, so if it's, if it's true for Kevin, it's certainly true for me. So all benefits. And finally here, the blessing of the best thing. The parents, we, we, we want the best thing for our children, don't we? We often exert pretty much all that we do to, to give a life for our children, to give an opportunity for our children to have the best. Like parents who want the best for their children, our Heavenly Father wants the best for us. That's gathering corporately, sanctifying the Lord's Day with worship, corporate, family, private. In Psalm 84, it says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Every single time you come, you're blessed. You come in faith. Psalm 84.10 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Do you think that a day here in the courts of the Lord is better than a thousand anywhere else? Would you not want then, if you can, to come a second time in the best place on earth, which is taking you to heaven? Psalm 87, 1 1 through 3 says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. You guys, we, we sing that song, glorious things of thee are spoken. The thee is of the church. Glorious things of the church, the city of God. The, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, more than all the small group gatherings, more than all of the uh, private gatherings. Because now we have all the people assembling to worship, to hear him speak, to bless us, praise his name. It's not to say that the dwelling places of Jacob are bad. No, they're good. This is where the people of God are as well. But the glorious things are spoken of the city of God. Do we long for the presence of God like the psalmists do? Now, if, if COVID taught us one thing, I'm sure it taught us many things, but if it taught us anything, I hope it taught us to long for corporate worship. Some were longing longer than others, but I hope every one of us missed when, when we simply provided recordings. It's best, I mean, best we could do at the time but it's not the best that can be done. Psalm 42, 1 through 4 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. This son of Korah is hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. I don't know how he got there, uh, but he, and he'd, be, he'd been persecuted. He longed for going back to the temple. And he remembers how he, as, as a son of Korah, would lead the people in songs. The remaining sons of Korah, 
So those that didn't die off in, in number 16 when the earth swallowed them up in that rebellion, the remaining, uh, a lot of them actually believed in the Lord. So it's a great testimony of God's grace to that uh, group of rebels. And they became uh, singers and leaders in corporate worship. And so this son, of course, I remember when I got to take the people and we had festivals. Oh, how I long for that. I can't wait to get back. Just even if, if we're sick on a Sunday, I hope the, the spirit is, oh, I understand, I can't be there right now. I, I get it, I'm sick, I'm in bed. I need to get better. Oh, but, oh, my spirit longs to be there. My spirit longs to hear the word of God there and embodied with the people of God. I don't want to miss a Sunday. It's the best day. And you get that twice on those Sundays when we have morning and evening. It's a wonderful way of closing out the Lord's Day. Just think of it this way. Sometimes uh, someone invites us to a place, uh, some gathering, some event. Oftentimes we ask, well, who's going to be there? I was invited to a party. I went to a party yesterday. Who's going to be there? Well, these people are going to be there. Hey, I like those people. I really like hanging out with them. Sometimes, oh, Jacob's going to be there. Great, I want to go. Esau's going to be there. I don't want to go. I don't want to be around him. Okay, Who's going to be there? That's a, that's a legitimate question. We don't want to have, and we don't want to waste three or four hours on a Saturday if somebody's just going to be there that's going to give us a hard time. We want to relax. Who's going to be there on the Lord's Day when we come and worship? We say, who's going to be there? God's going to be there? Do you guys know we, every single day, every single Lord's Day, we go there and we're worshiping our Heavenly Father, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit. That's who we get to meet with. Just come. Worship. Why would, why would I not want to be there? That's where my, that's where my Savior is. That's when he speaks to me. That's when he feeds me the Lord's Supper. This is where I want to be every single day. But I know I can't. Six days a week, I'm working. Other day, rest. This is where I want to be. So much better than a political rally or a legionnaire conference or anything else. This is where we were made to be. It's a taste of heavenly worship. The application is very clear. Come, worship. Come, hear your Savior. Come, kill your sin. Come and grow in communion with your siblings. I ended last week with this. I'll end again. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, you really are gracious. We do not deserve to come into your presence. We do not deserve to hear your word preach to our hearts, to hear your word read, to sing your praises. We do not deserve any of this, but you are rich in love, and you call us to worship you. Lord, we, we desire to worship you for all eternity, and we thank you that we will have, we have that opportunity every Lord's Day. We pray that uh, when we can, we will make that opportunity as well, uh, whenever it is offered, morning and evening. You're worthy of much more. 
We thank you that you've given us opportunity to worship you, to be with your children, to be with our brothers and sisters. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.